Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. What's going to happen in 2020? If you want to know, you're about to find out, because I do know. And I'm joined in studio by Donal O'Donovan, the business editor I'm of the Irish. I'm um, Adrian's crystal ball here. It's a big crystal ball and it's an accurate crystal ball. I have a 100% record, minus about 50% of getting things right in previous years. And I'm going to make some, we are going to make some predictions uh, this year. We're going to go through things like uh, privacy, uh, what gadgets to expect, what services. We're going to look at things like cashless society, banking tech, electric cars, uh, Facebook, whether big tech companies are tracking us, digital safety commissioner, um, continued emergence of China, Huawei, drones, all sorts of stuff. Some of it shallow, some of it very, very worthy. Let's start with the worthy stuff because you're a worthy kind of a guy, Donald. Mm. Um Let's look at the first big GDPR fine. So right now, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner has 61 statutory inquiries under GDPR law into entities in Ireland, 21 of which are focused on tech multinational firms. I'm just going to list them. Eight are into Facebook, three are into Twitter, three are into Apple, two are into WhatsApp, one into Instagram, Google also has one, LinkedIn, Quantcast and Verizon Media. And we're expecting the first verdicts in in early 2020 for Twitter and WhatsApp. So the, one of the talking points here is going to be what the Data Protection Commissioner is actually going to do. Because under the GDPR law, she can find them up to 4% of annual turnover, now in global annual turnover. Now, in Facebook's case, that would be billions and billions of euro. But she has indicated to me when I did a podcast with her a few months ago that don't necessarily expect that kind of $5 billion uh, fine that the Americans put on Facebook, because that's not the way, you know, we operate, is what she's saying. She, what she's kind of saying is that the goal of these decisions and these investigations is to try and improve the way that these companies work to protect citizens. It's not necessarily just to slap a big fine on them, uh, to, you know, to punish them, to deter them uh, that way. So we're going to be talking about this over the next few months. I, I, I know we will. Um, just in terms of what we do in the paper. I, I suppose the surprise is that we haven't been talking about it over the last few months so much. Mm. Um, in, in, in terms of GDPR fund, this time last year, we would have been expecting mm. some kind of blockbuster Definitely, yeah. uh, enforcement action in Ireland. Mm. As you say, Like there's no end of cases out there being investigated. And mm. actually where blockbuster enforcement, enforcement action came of the GDPR, of the European data rules, was in the UK, mm. was to, to really massive fines 
Um, uh, funnily enough, uh, for BA, a, a British company in the UK, um, albeit sort of quasi-Spanish, owned, I guess, the parent, and Marriott Hotels. So about mm. 300 million of fines during the summer uh, in the UK. And that's really where we are in terms of U- European mm. sort of exemplary The thing, uh, the thing about that, those figures, 300 million, that's nothing to somebody like Facebook or Google. Like it's under somebody like Facebook or, or Google, but it's a lot of money to somebody like BA or Marriott, or Marriott. companies who are fined. Yeah, yeah. no, the, uh, absolutely. Um, but we're going to be looking at this and we're going to be writing about it and talking about it. I, I think this is going to be one of the big stories of next year. And what might be... The, so, so what will the nub of that story be? Will it be that there are verdicts and fines uh, there? Or will it be that... Uh, you know, the, the DPC here has held back from, you know, hitting these companies with massive fines. And, and will we be speculating on things like political pressure or the climate in which she has to, in, in, in which she has to operate? I mean, I've put those questions to her directly before many times. Do you feel you're under political pressure? Uh, or that you have to be cognizant, not political, but cognizant of the environment and the political ecosystem in which you're operating, particularly between the European Union and the US and all of the under. Because the reason the Irish Data Protection Commissioner is looking at these cases, you listed a lot of mm. cases, they're almost all, if not all, uh, US corporations, mm. um, is because those corporations, US corporations, have very big um, presence in Ireland mm-hmm. in terms of either their intellectual properties parked here or they have lots and lots of jobs here, mm. or both in many yeah, cases. Yeah, big employers. Yeah, they're the biggest employers almost in the private sector. Yeah, now. sometimes when we're talking about this in the media, we it's very hard not to include a paragraph somewhere in the story saying that, you know, Facebook and Google, just to take those two companies, you know, employed close to 10,000, more than context to the reader. But there is a reason why that gives context to the reader, and that is that we're, we're wondering whether or not that plays a part somehow in the grand scheme of things when it comes to things like enforcement. Whether it does for, for the regulator, I guess, is 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 is, is it fairly fraught, but it absolutely it does. Doesn't. But it absolutely does for policymakers. So no sensible policymaker in a, a democracy is going to ignore the fact that this is a major industry. Because mm-hmm. there are people who would say, look at um, at Facebook and 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 look at Google and look at, at Twitter and look at their business models and say that business model is probably not ultimately compatible with European data protection. Mm. Um, uh, the thrust of it, let alone the detail of it, but just you know how 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 the European data protection is supposed to work, mm. it's very difficult to see how companies that you know that that are really involved in the in the harvesting of data one way or another are compatible with that. And then there's a public policy issue that says, well, if they are compatible, if they can find themselves to be compatible, or if they can be brought to be compatible with what is relatively new um, legislative frame, framework, then there's a public policy good in having this industry and in having these jobs and in advancing sort of technology and all the rest of it. Mm. So there's a balance to be struck there. But and I can absolutely see why there would be privacy ca- campaigners who would say, well, I don't think that's really good enough or why there would be, on the other hand, kind of, um, you know, industry lobbyists or industry campaigners or people who are just sort of pro jobs who would say, look, the, the jobs are more important. And somewhere in the middle, policymakers have to balance that mm. out. It's different for the regulator. But then regulators have... You know, regulators aren't juries. You know, they're not judges. And they're, and 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 so, what what is a regulator trying to do? Is a regulator trying to bring operators in long term and say this is how we're going no. to collectively work this through? Well, I or mean, are I they mean, or are they I mean, out there yes, trying to catch of, of rogue the operators? Enforcement of the law, but 
their strictly defined their role is to take the law that is written down or or passed through uh, or received from courts and to implement it and to to regulate the company or the sector that's their and if they find someone to be in breach then uh, then they have to you know, take, take enforcement action although, yeah. although th- th- one of the reasons I'm talking about this is I remember the last data protection commissioner Billy Hawkins I mean, there's an ongoing saga now with regard to the US and the EU intentions uh, tensions between the two because of essentially U.S. national security law, which says that they're allowed to intercept or spy or gather uh, data on us because that's what they think they need to do for their own national security. And there's a fundamental discrepancy there between them and us in that regard. And there have been a number of court cases. There's one that's currently going through the uh, European Court of Justice. There was a decision on that very from an opinion from the uh, Advocate General very recently and the, the, what it boils down to really is whether or not um, data transfers between the EU and the US ultimately can continue with a, you know with the current setup particularly in the US where where they do this where they do this activity and I remember putting this to Billy Hawkins back in the day because it first landed on his desk. Max, Max Schrems first took a case when Billy Hawkins was there. And his position, the, the number of the issue at, at that time was whether or not uh, the um, safe harbor treaty between the EU and the US could could be upheld as being valid given what we knew from the Edward Snowden re- re- revelations. And Hawkins' point was... Hawkins, Billy Hawks, isn't it? Billy Hawks. His point was, this is above my pay grade. I can't, what you're asking me to do here is to invalidate uh, an international treaty between two sovereign blocks. Now, a privacy purist will say, well, go ahead and do it then. That's your job. Don't have it fall, yeah. But his point was, you know, um, honestly, that's probably more than this office signed up for uh, when, and the, the amount of crap that it could cause. He didn't say that, but that's the impression that I got. Now, Helen Dixon is not saying that either, but... Although, mind you, the, the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice more or less said that last week. When yeah, he, uh, he did. Um, he did. He, he basically said that um, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner and other data protection authorities around Europe must themselves take more responsibility for judging whether or not a third-party country system, i.e. the US, is a safe environment for European data to be transferred to. And that really puts the ball back in Helen Dixon's court, and that's now where the pressure is going to start to mount. But I don't know. I I wonder, is, is that fair on Helen Dixon's office? Is that what she signed up for? Is that her job now? I mean, what is her job? Yeah, that, 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 that's her job is to enforce the rules. The rules come down and she's been given clarity, I guess, mm. that that is the function and and, and that that's where Sorry, any intervention... My, uh, <coughs> jacket I'm getting slightly uncomfortable, but uh, uh, that, 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 that if there's an intervention jacket, that, A, she's authorised to do it and B, she's, you know, that there's an onus on her to do it. Yeah. Um, so that's fairly straightforward and useful to her, I would have thought. But he also looked at the privacy shield and sort of made some allusions to that without quite Mm. coming down to the you know to the position that it, it can't I mean stand. I just think in the medium to long term I just can't see how uh, the the current setup it can go on without some major change either the Americans 
assuring the Europeans that they're going to take this seriously, that they're going to put it in place much more stringent um, judicial oversight or some kind of something to give the EU comfort that uh, data is being treated properly, or the EU having to, to you know, blow the whole thing up, uh, even temporarily, and say, well, we're cutting off data transfers in this instance or, or in that instance. I, that To me, that's the way it's going. And I think 2020 is going to, could be a year of massive pressure on Helen Dixon's office from that point of view. But that is what happens in new industries. So, you know, to sell a car in the US from Europe, it has to be compliant with mm-hmm. both US and, 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 well, and this particularly US. necessarily new. I mean, like... It's in, relatively in new and it takes a while for these things to find their way. Um, mm-hmm. California, it looks like coming very close to implementing something very close to the GDPR. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, if California was to be effectively compliant with Europe, then there'd be a question, well, can, can data transfers to you know a, a non-sovereign continue? If the US wanted to maintain data transfers and it, it came to the point where US companies in the US had to be compliant with GDPR effectively or you know implement an equivalent of GDPR, mm. then that might be something that they would do because in order to sell US cars in Europe, they have to be compliant oh, with European safety rules. 100%. They, and are, and are happy will, to do that yeah. and, will, and will not sort of give up the ability to sell cars internationally. Absolutely. And that is a point that privacy campaigners make. That ultimately, US companies, they're not going to walk away from the EU single market. So they, even if it, you know, they have to implement A, B, C, D, E, or F, they will do it ultimately to. Now they'll have apply. to be legally compliant in their home market. So mm-hmm. if you know that may require legislative change in the U.S. or it may be the data transfers to the U.S. have to stop and 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 somebody has to figure out how to break up the internet. Yeah, I mean that it almost steps into another issue, which we may get to later on, and that is in relation to China and the emergence of China and the importance of China to those companies, but also to the global internet uh, and corporate infrastructure, because what China decrees now most of the big tech companies to some degree go along with and while we often go berserk at that and and say that's wrong and it's ethically wrong for them to do that at the same time we're asking the tech companies to you know change all of their systems and their products for our legal system and to bend to our wishes and yet even as those words come out of my mouth I can hear the objection to it and saying, well, you, you can't have moral equivalency between a Western standard in the EU and a Chinese standard when it comes to, for example, uh, surveillance. I'm just saying it's it's quite a difficult, it's, I don't think it's a simple binary issue. Um, I think, no, I but, think it's but I think what we're getting to is, is, you know, after essentially whatever it is, 25 years, where the internet was a sort of fact that was super sovereign or non-sovereign or sovereign agnostic in some way, that it's kind of getting to the end of that road. And so, you know, the so US whose rules or do, China, do, do we follow then? Like you, who who is going to rule the internet? Well, ultimately, the law isn't cross-border. It's not international. The law is what applies in each jurisdiction. Absolutely. And the internet has kind of skirted that and has grown by ignoring that. Um, and has benefited us all enormously by ignoring that. But there's probably a point where you can't ignore that anymore. And the internet is in China. And as as you say, everyone who operates in China is effectively compliant with a very, very, very restrictive and censorious regime. It's funny because I was in China uh, this year, this year being 2019. We're recording this at the end of 2019. And I spent a little bit of time there. And it was an eye-opener to me just how 
much I could do with the Chinese apps, with, you know, Baidu, with WeChat, um, effectively the equivalents of Google and WhatsApp, and just how, I mean, we imagine, we have this idea that our week, our lives would finish if Google and Facebook and WhatsApp. Yep. It, it, it absolutely doesn't. You can actually do an awful lot of stuff. And in a way, that's more interesting because it means, I mean, we're seeing that a bit with Huawei now. So I interviewed Huawei executives um, quite recently, this month, in fact. And again, I put to them what's going to happen with the with your smartphones now that you're still in this limbo with Google. They haven't been completely cut off, but they're in limbo with Google. And they're now, they came out with their first phone that has no U.S hardware components in it um, and they have a new operating system that is ready to go for future smartphones if the Google thing isn't resolved and I've no doubt that they will survive with that because they've got such a big single market but if if that's the case are we going to see two internets or three internets uh, emerge I don't know I, I think I think that's what's going to happen so if I was making a prediction on this for 2020 I would say, unless the Americans back down, we're going to see a serious fork in the road of the internet in general. And you can't just say, well, it's only China, because China is about a quarter of the world when it comes to online activity, when it comes to uh, the stuff we're talking about here. So, and it's increasingly influential in artificial intelligence, it's increasingly take the lead in, in a lot of those sectors. But anyway, and it's definitely changing the, 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 the internet and the digital economy. So the, mm. China, in, in, in some ways, parts of China certainly and, and cohorts of Chinese population are the most digital the most mm. digitised economy and the most digitised society yeah um, and the most connected um, and command economy they just make decisions compared to where where sort of the early evangelists of the internet and kind of almost unlimited freedom online and, and, and all that sort of thing you know when you and I were students would have predicted the internet to be going that's more or less gone in entirely the opposite mm. uh, direction and is part and without as you say, and is entirely part of the global system as well at the same time. See, the thing, I think sometimes with China, and I am no, I'm not an expert in China at all. I actually don't know that much about China. I've only really started taking an interest in the last two or three years. But it does seem to me from talking to people there, from looking at how the country is developing economically and culturally, that this is all part of their idea of just advancing China as a, a civilization um, really, really, really quickly. Uh, and so, like when I was in Shenzhen, for example, a city of 20 million people, based on Shannon, by the way, um, and that's we've told that story before, I won't go into it, but the, the potted version is that a couple of Chinese officials came over 40 years ago uh, to see how a free trade zone saw me zone in worked. my pram in Shannon yeah, 40 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, liked what they saw, went back, took a tiny fishing village uh, across the border from Hong Kong, and turn it into a city of 20 million people uh, called Shenzhen. Anyway, when I was there, most of the taxis there, all, all in fact, are electric vehicles. And the reason they're electric vehicles is a couple of years ago, the Chinese government just clicked its fingers and said, you're all going to be electric, and now they're all electric. And that's terrifying, but on the other hand, it shows you how quickly that country can move and how quickly they can adapt. I mean, I think I saw some figure recently where uh, uh, estimating that they're... I think they're eight times wealthier than they were 30 years ago. It's it, uh, across the average. Sure. It, it's it's something horrendously dramatic like that. And by adopting these online systems so quickly, I think that they are, uh, they're just trying to, you know, put a rocket under themselves. 
they said they're going to the moon, actually, didn't they? I think they, they, they have, China has said that it will have a man on the moon, I think, is it by 2030? I'll have to check that, but, um, which is more of a psychological blow to the West than it. Well, I, it is to me, I would regard the putting people on the moon as being a really serious uh, in metric of how advanced you are technologically as a society. Um, the Russia was the Americans and the Russians. And I know people will say, oh, God, look, stop talking about people on the moon, for God's sake. Like, why can't we fix, uh, you know, homelessness or... Potholes. Potholes, which, you know, can we not do both, you know? But anyway, that's an argument for um, a different day. Um, before we get on to 5G, which I'm going to talk about, let's just... Because we've sort of gotten into the China thing, so we'll just wrap that up. Huawei. Huawei is the most controversial company, It is the I'd most say, controversial company in the world, I think. In the yeah. world. Um, now, some people might say it's mm -hmm. Facebook... But to certain people, and I've had Declan Ganley, for example, on this podcast before, um, and, and just and just sponsored nuts. the GA. Yeah, yeah. So um, Huawei has just done not sponsored the GA. I think they've done a is it an innovation partnership? And I think it's around just Croke Park. I think it's to make it a smart stadium. Mm -hmm. um, I got the press release. It wasn't a hundred percent clear exactly how it was going to be a smart stadium. I think it's mainly to do with putting in. Uh, equipment so that when you're at a match and you're looking for a signal to, you know, to uh, upload to TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is, actually TikTok, TikTok probably, slip there, yeah. um, you know, uh, HD or 4K content that you'll be able to do so because the bandwidth will be so good in Croke Park. But I've interviewed them a few times. Every time I do, I bring up the political stuff um, as any journalist uh, would every time they say, look, that's the political stuff. We're just trying to run a telecoms company here. So for 2020, um, I think that I think that, that story will rumble on as a security issue. But I think if no more your EU or European states crumble under American lobbying pressure, I think the argument will recede because by that point, Huawei will have its 5G networks in most of the, at least half the countries in the EU or most of them. And then it's not a live argument anymore in the same way as it is when they're debating. Although again, what we've seen is that that lobbying is, is intense in both directions. And mm -hmm. then, the, you know, the German and Norwegian examples are, are stark. The Chinese ambassador in, 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 in Berlin and uh, apparently and, and reportedly having warned that any attempt to block Huawei and that there is an attempt to block um, indirectly Huawei uh, by politicians in the, in the in, in German parliament that that would potentially hit the German car industry in China and that the German car industry in China could be locked out of China so I mean the lobbying is intense the, the US That's lobbying is 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 kind of very old-fashioned and in a way despite I mean Donald to be Trump, fair it's, it's, Trump, it's, Trump just it's tweets diplomatic it. Trump will uh, say lobbying. he'll he yeah. will tweet something like if country X doesn't get its act together we will you know slap 30% tariffs or we'll pull all of your products out and we sort of don't really take that seriously. Or not, not the first couple of Trump uh, not tweets first, anyway. Not the first yeah. couple of tweets. But then when we hear an ambassador, a Chinese ambassador has said it, we take it because the Chinese are kind of, they're, it's a country of its word. It's a country where they can implement a decision. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely true. And the idea that there would be a quid pro quo, um, very stark for German mm. policymakers because famously... Now, mind you, German current... Every month there's some, you know, supposed crisis affecting German, the current German car industry. Because that's what they care about in Germany. The car <coughs> I know, but it never, German cars still seem to 
keep selling, whether or not they've dodgy uh, exhausts or not. Yeah. Um, so Huawei is yeah controversial company. Um, TikTok is a controversial company. TikTok, interestingly, uh, today uh, um, is suggesting that they're looking for a headquarters. So today means the twenty second, twenty third of December is when we're recording. Uh, that they're looking for a, a headquarters outside of China and potentially looking at Ireland, looking at Dublin, um, to do that. Okay, so for our predictions, here's an interesting one. So we're what we're saying is that it's possible that one of one or maybe two significant Chinese uh, investments will be made in Ireland, maybe a TikTok headquarters. And secondly, we mentioned Huawei. Huawei are currently, we believe, looking for a European components factory base, partially to get around the US uh, uh, trade ban issues. And Ireland is... Ireland's up there in terms of where it might be. My understanding is Ireland is definitely in the frame. Yep, for both, I think. And yeah. and, and you can see why, because Intel has a big chip plant here, which mm-hmm. would be sort of an equivalent of what Huawei is looking to do in terms of components. And there are lots of, of component mm-hmm. manufacturers here. Uh, so I, I wondered when I, when, I, when I first was thinking about that, why would they pick Ireland? We don't have manufacturing. And you're right, then Intel. But also, I, I forgot. Analog devices. Apple. Big business. Apple is big business here, manufacturing. Apple yeah. still makes iMacs in Cork. Yeah. Like, like I, 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 every year I forget it, and every year I remember it, and I'm, I kind of am amazed. Yeah. I've, I've been on the assembly line down there. They actually physically put together iMacs yeah. down there. So we do have some... Assembly line. Expertise. We do, and then we have the equivalent of, of TikTok. We have Facebook mm. and 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 obviously Google and and Twitter. Also, I've seen the here. Huawei uh, assembly line in China as well, and there's hardly any being on it. It's, yeah, they're not going to be. Sort of so they just build the thing. Human they have intensive. Like Twenty people looking in, and it's a bit like a data center. Yeah, but a big investment. Yeah, and we talked earlier about how policymakers here who look at Facebook and look at privacy, and look at at Google and look at privacy have you know are balancing mm. various things. And it, I don't think it's an accident that you then have going to have some of those same considerations for Ireland or for Germany or for whoever gets mm. the TikTok and the Huawei investment, that that will be in the mix, that there is big investment in, in, in Europe, which is unusual. I mean, we've seen investment from China in Europe, relatively small scale over, mm. over the years or some some bigger deals in, in, in infrastructure in, in Greece and things like that, but but not nothing compared to the scale of US FDI. Mm. And US FDI in Ireland is a policy geopolitical thing. It's a fact. There's money on the ground. There's lots of people on the ground. And, and it colours Irish attitudes, political attitudes to Europe, to the US, to international trade and to all sorts of other things. Potentially, that's something that China, as the second biggest economy in the world, is going to be looking at as well. Although nowhere near the same scale. Nowhere surely. near the same scale now. No. Um, but a bit like the church, I think China Although doesn't think to, in decades. They if you listen to Paddy Cosgrave, in, in, uh, in he has kind of been suggesting quite openly for the last six to 12 months, he thinks that some the US multinationals are, are, are looking at their Irish operations and at slimming their Irish operation. Now, he Paddy, who has been on the podcast several times, has a real bee in his bonnet about tax policy and the OECD and tax accountants here and everything in between. And I think he has a theory that because things are slowly starting to tighten up in Ireland, that well, the double was, Irish is gone was, yeah. for the companies that had it yeah. by the end of next year. Yeah. So there will be changes, um, but, no doubt. But, but, but he thinks that that's going to result in uh, the US tech companies slimming down their presence here. Uh, 
he, he tweeted something there a few weeks ago. Um, uh, he was wondering about what he thought was uh, Facebook reassigning a number of people to the Nordic countries. It, it turned out that it wasn't what he thought it was. Um, this is just according to his, his own Twitter stream. Um, but th- that fear, the only reason I mention him uh, in this context is there is always that fear that the US companies could reduce their presence here if and when the tax code changes. Now it has changed. So, it's changing the US fundamentally yeah. and it's changing in Europe and it's changing internationally. So the question is for 2020, are we going to see any, will we see more investment by US companies here about the same or less? Now, from my vantage point in interviewing them and covering what they're doing, I don't see any less at the moment. There are no signs to me of any less. 2019, where we knew most of this already, they 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 were doubling down and yeah. increasing their like Facebook has its new huge uh, headquarters, which it is doing up. It keeps announcing uh, more roles. Google pretty much the same, it, 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 and lots it, of the smaller ones as well. We've seen yeah, you know fairly consistent jobs growth, and also with some of those companies, you see their job numbers. They announce them out kind of three years out, and then yeah. So if you look at the curve. It, the curve seems to mirror the curve of how they are growing economically yeah. uh, internationally. It doesn't seem to be, it, so far, not that I have seen, if you were to inflect that curve with changes in the tax code, it doesn't seem to have made... If anything, you would have seen the intensification yeah. um, of, of, of jobs in Ireland, which is kind of the core investment. So are we saying that we don't think there's going to be... We don't know. Any I, I think what we're saying is that we will watch a how job announcements that have been announced over the last, you know, one, two and three years are actually fulfilled and they seem to be being fulfilled at the moment. Mm-hmm. With the with the, the sort of the major issue that there's a struggle for some of those companies to actually find people to hire. But will we see the same level and, and it's worth monitoring? Do we see the same level of kind of forward jobs announcements, forward FDI investments? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Um and we will have to watch that and then report as it happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um I have something here on 5G. I don't know. That's a bit boring. Um, 5G. Uh, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that because I, I write about 5G. I'm, I'm actually shocked. very interested. I'm my jaws on the floor. Um, Surely 5G is very... Is 5G is going to happen, I suppose. Will well, it, it is me? happening. But for the purposes of this podcast, um, in this this segment, I don't know there's that much to, in terms of predictions, which is what we're doing uh, here. I, I will say that... Uh, there are two out of three operators have launched 5G Air and uh, Vodafone Air has most sites. Um, I have a 5G phone, um, so I pick. I up. don't, and I probably won't feel compelled to buy one. I guess. Well, the big turn, the big uh, point is going to be September when Apple launches a 5G I iPhone. Just, There's just no a, 5G as a side iPhone, note. Adrian's always horror, horrified by my phone. So, <sighs> yeah. Well, um, uh, you and John Isle, who is a former colleague of mine, who now works for Davey, or good buddy, good buddy, good buddy. Uh, uh, you all, you can always reliably be um, relied upon to have uh, the iPhone from five or six years, or the Samsung from five years ago or six years ago. Anyway, listen, we're way off the point. Um, the well, thing- not really. I, I suppose, I mean, will early adapters, you know, people like you who have mm. a 5G phone, will you actually see a sort of a return on that given that no. you now have 5G available? Will no. you see something where you have to do 5G, new things? No, not for at least 18 months. So, there are 5G sites around, but the speeds you'll get out of it, two, three, 400 megabits per second, even though I am an advocate in uh, preparing for a faster bandwidth future, I think it's mor- moronic for 
people to argue that you only need, you know, three or four megabits for your phone because that's the speed at which your compressed YouTube or Facebook video uh, plays that you definitely will need uh, faster in future. At, at having said that, at the moment, on for anything I do, it doesn't require more than 15 or 20 megabits per second. I get that on a 4G signal. I get that on a 4G signal down in rural uh, Ireland. But you def I definitely will need 5G in probably two or three years' time for whatever it is that we're doing at the time. I, I do believe that. Um, so that means in seven years I'll be getting a five year, 5G phone. <laughs> yeah, when we're, well, the rest of us are in 7G. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the I suppose the only thing... I'd even reluctant to mention it, but there is still a small tale of rural councillors and protest Facebook groups talking about health issues and, you know, will 5G give me cancer? Will it give my kids cancer? And by and large, I've, we've done a podcast on this. I did uh, a big, uh, big feature on this uh, during the year as well. Most, almost all of the evidence, certainly most of it, suggests that there's very little difference between 5G and 4G and 3G when it comes to addressable health concerns to human beings. Um, however, uh, there is that there. Every time I talk about 5G or uh, write about it, I usually get a letter. It's usually a letter, not an email, um, from someone who insists that they or their cousin or somebody they know uh, lives beside a mobile mast and gets headaches or can't sleep. And to be honest, you know, I, I can't... if, if if they can't sleep or they get headaches, then they can't sleep or they get headaches. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not for me to say what is or isn't behind that, but just having looked at the evidence, it suggests that 5G isn't an addressable health risk. Yeah, and you get the same issue with, with, with wind turbines, and, yep. and I guess it's you know it's it's very difficult to convince somebody who's convinced. Yep. Yes. Uh, and um, that, that there's a policy issue there. Well, whether 5G comes about or not, that's all we have time for this week, folks, in part one of our 2020 predictions. But we will be coming back to you at the same time next week with part two of what's going to happen in 2020 in technology. So please uh, join us then. And thanks very much to Donald O'Donovan, the business editor of the Irish Independent, for joining us this week. Bye-bye.